came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Ksenia, how are you? Hi, Jason. I'm all right. How are you? Pretty good. Just working away. Semester is progressing. I know, I know. We're kind of nearly there. You've been on strike though, right? I have. Yeah, the strikes are over now. um, For now. Mm. (laughs) You know, I think think there will be more to come because UK academics want their pensions and pay. Yeah, it seems like Um, an ongoing fight. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the whole um, academia has just been so liberalized. And I think that's part of the problem that the future is just being destroyed, you know, of... of, um, academic integrity so we'll we'll see where where it'll take us you know we have to stand kind of shoulder to shoulder we have to stand solidarity otherwise nothing will change yeah well it's it's like hard to know how exactly to support um all of you in the uk in that fight so any ideas i think it's just kind of vocalizing the problems you know and higher education in general in general Mm. Um, because I, I just feel that all of the higher education all around the world is sort of going through the same thing. Um, it's just being commodified, right, and commercialized. Um, and it's turning from... I feel like that we are kind of losing the value of education uh, and the value of research is just turned into like this... It's turned into this factory of, I don't know, graduates um, that are not here to critically think, but more are like consumers, right? And academics are becoming, um, I guess, service providers rather than academics and researchers. Um, yeah. yeah, and our, our labor is just being devalued. And I guess we just are becoming more and more replaceable. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been really hard um, for, for the UK academics, but yeah. it's been great to see so much support in, in the UK, but also abroad. Um, so hopefully something yeah. will change, you know. I hope so. It's a difficult environment for people to like challenge norms and challenge mm-hmm. the like institutional power. And um so part of the reason why we did this whole season, you know, on early career researchers, but also on the um DPM special issue, um, was to feature the the perspectives and insights of some of these scholars who are really putting forward new ideas and and doing their research in a, in like a more critical and counter I don't know counter normative normative way. Yeah. yeah so I, I'm excited like today is is our last episode to speak with some of the authors from the special issue but we do have more episodes to come in the season continuing mm-hmm. to speak with early career researchers that are kind of characterizing some of these things we're discussing Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and it's just been so great to um hear about different approaches right that really allow to challenge scholarship to challenge kind of 
thinking and also to find ways of being researchers and scholars in in a way that supports communities rather than you know that traditional helicopter mm. you know and come and tell you what to do but you've been doing some work uh, with communities recently like now as well right yeah so the, today's episode is is really interesting for me because I, like in the last year i've also just spent a lot of time reflecting on my own position towards communities and I, I think a lot of disaster researchers need to go through this process of of reflection um especially with regards to power and privilege and how how we how we engage you know and um whether, whether we're like what are we prepared to, to sacrifice and give up um and i think a lot of people are are torn because they're working within the system that expects certain things of them, like getting the data, owning the data, um, taking the credit, earning the dollars. Like, so you're working in that system, which is against kind of what we know is best for the community. So, so understanding your, the way that you're compromised and, um, trying to I guess work a bit subversively is is where I'm at, and um, yeah, we're we're ju- we're just undertaking or just starting a project in Jacksonville, which um, is yeah, which is making me keep that front and center, like that reflective mm. process. And this is amazing. I, I'm you know I was just so happy that you got that funding mm. to do this project because finally it sort of restored, you know, for a second um, faith in that it is possible to get funding to actually do some good work, you know, rather than just the normal kind of technocratic stuff. So good luck. I, I'm, I'm just really excited about this project and I want to learn more. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it as we, as we start <laughs> and continue in the next couple of years. But, um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think so. But Um, Let's get on to this episode. Community engagement is yet another topic we keep coming back to. Um, In season three in particular, we discussed community-based action with Zenaida Delica-Willison and Mihir Pat. And also most of the season two, we were focusing on discussions about groups of people that are marginalized and whose voices are very often simply ignored. And today we continue this discussion and we'll be coming back to the issue of promoting the voices of those whom we research. And so joining us today are Miguel Angel Trejo Angel, Husna Wulansari, and Chrisant Lily Kasumo Wodoyo, whose papers you can find in the Emerging Voices special issue that we're um, digging into this season. And we're particularly excited that today we're joined by practitioners as well as academics, which is great. Um, so a little bit about our guest today. Miguel Trejo is a doctoral candidate at the National Institute for Space Research in Brazil. His research focuses on social innovation for enhancing flood resilience. He's also an advisory board and disaster risk reduction member at the NGO Water Youth Network. Husna Wulansari is communication and information coordinator at Arbeider Samareiter Bund Indonesia and the Philippines. She develops various communication strategies and plans in particular for the Disability Inclusive Disaster Risk Reduction Network. Finally, Chrisant Lili Kasumo Wodoyo also works for the Arbeider Samarider Bund Indonesia and the Philippines, where she's a project manager. 
In her work, she's built her experience in a wide range of development issues, including disability inclusion, DRR, health policy and management, child welfare, and volunteer management. Um, we're really glad to have you all join us today. Thanks for uh, spending time with us. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, Sydney and Jason. Thank you very much for inviting us for this podcast. Okay, great. So, um, yeah, we're really excited about this episode, and um, I think it really builds on things we've been talking about each week this season. So, first of all, I have a question for all of you, maybe one at a time, um, because we want to know a bit more about you and how you ended up in this space. So, um, how did you all come to work in and with communities, and why is it so important for your practice? So since my bachelor's degree in sustainable management of coastal areas in Mexico, where I am actually originally from, uh, I was interested in disaster risk reduction. However, I was mostly focused on the physical processes, such as floods and erosion. Um, and then my master's, um, having the opportunity to work at the National Water Commission in Mexico, I, rela I realized that I was missing a very important aspect, people. <laughs> uh, until that moment, I mostly focused on the impacts rather on the root cases. And it was also the time where I met my supervisor that you maybe know, Victor Marquesini, who suggested me to apply for a doctoral program mm. in Brazil, where I am right now. Um, and I said, yes, why not? So it seems very interesting. So it has been almost four years since I officially worked with human communities, which I totally believe is what I want to continue doing. So that's basically my answer to that question. That's great. Thank you so much, Mega. How about you, Husna? Yeah, thank you. I started with being a research assistant in my university when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, I worked for several research that involved uh, the community, especially the uh, people who live in the rural areas in Indonesia. Uh, it is especially on the politics of clean water uh, management in Indonesia. And another topic that I worked on uh, with the community is about the nonviolent actions. There I work uh, with uh, some of the environmental activists uh, who um, you know, protest against uh, the development of a cement factory in Indonesia. And those have been uh, the important uh, steps that encourage me to work more with the community. And that's why I uh, continue my work with uh, ASB now. Great. Thank you so much, Husna, for that intro. And uh, finally, Lily, please. Um, thank you, Jason. So before I answer your question, I want to clarify that, yes, I've been working with communities throughout my work in the development sector, but my definition of communities is not the traditional sense of working in and with communities bound by a particular geographical location, but instead I've been working with communities bound by certain identities like youth, people living with HIV, people with disabilities, older people, and so on. And for me, it started when I was in college. At the time, I was involved as a peer educator in a youth organization that works on reproductive health issues. 
um, from that experience, I can see the disconnect between the strategies of the authorities like teachers, the Ministry of Education, and so on in terms of sexuality education. And what we as youth want to learn and how we want to learn about it, about sexuality education. And quite often, the strategies do not come with a good understanding of the youth community. And this ignorance can hinder the direct and efficient service for young people. So from then on, I learned that to make your work effective, you must have that connection with the communities you are working with to avoid the disconnect between what you think is good and what is actually needed. And I think it's similar for all communities, including people with disabilities, the community sectors that I'm currently focusing on. Back to you. Great, thank you. Thank you so much for, for this introduction. And also, Lily, you've provided such a great segue to, to my next question, which is, in fact, to you um, again. Um, thank you for you know, setting up this definition of community, because indeed, very often we focus on location rather than on people. And I feel like we can have a whole episode, if not a season of definition of communities, probably, uh, with Jason. Um, and so I want to ask you about disability the topic that you, you you're focusing on um in in your in your work so disability is something is a theme that we um have been discussing on the podcast and it is indeed of kind of much interest for disaster researchers and practitioners and it has been for a while and i guess we can say that there has been a move of acknowledging the needs of people, um, of disabled people in national and international frameworks, such as say Sunday framework for disaster risk reduction. But at the same time, in reality, I'm sure we can say that the representation of voices of disabled people is far from great. Um, and I just, you know, every time we talk about disabilities, I, I keep thinking about this, um, the global platform, United Nations global platform, which was in 2017, where the uh, group for disability, they kind of uh, invited everyone to the event. Um, but the invitation was in Braille. And, you know, we had to go and figure out and find somebody who reads Braille. And then it was Braille in Spanish. So we had to go and figure out somebody who kind of speaks Spanish. So to even get to the event, and it was just such a great example how, um, you know, whilst it seems like everyone is included in, in reality that this, uh, you know, this is not the case at all. And so going back to kind of to my question to representation, why do you think this representation of voices of disabled people still lacks in what we do in terms of disaster risk reduction? And what do we need to do to challenge those who deny such representation? It's very difficult to just pinpoint one particular reason for uh, such a lack of uh, representation of uh, disability stakeholders in PRR consultation mechanism like uh, the standard framework that you mentioned. So factors that uh, are causing the limited direct representation of people with disabilities in not just the international consultation mechanism like the standard framework, but also regional or even local uh, consultation mechanisms. And maybe we can look at the barriers from the DRR sector first. Um, to recall that in the years leading up to the Sendai framework, the UNDRR, 
then still DNISDR, they conducted the first global survey that scored living with disability and disaster. The survey found that over 85% of the respondents who are people with disabilities had not participated in DRR planning and processes, which is very surprising because we as DRR practitioners know that people with disabilities face three to four times higher risk of mortality in the event of a disaster, as evidenced in the research following the Great East Japan earthquake of 2011. But still, for some reason, we did not engage this particular sector in our preparedness effort, which is, of course, um, you know, it's, it's very strange. And many researchers in trying to explain this phenomenon link it with the concept of vulnerability that is so ingrained and so familiar in DRR. As a concept, the social vulnerability paradigm helps us to identify the way people's vulnerability differ based on socioeconomic factors such as poverty, social class, disability, age, ethnicity, gender, and so on. Um, unfortunately, the identification of quote-unquote vulnerable groups in DRR is often very much simplified. It mainly focuses on a single demographic characteristic like age, gender, or disability, instead of viewing how these different characteristics intersect and create layered vulnerabilities. I think this frame of identification further eliminates persons with disabilities from DRR since it establishes the association or even labeling that they need special assistance, their lack of individual agencies, and have no capacity to contribute to DRR. And on the other hand, I think the limited engagement with people with disabilities in DRR also means that DRR becomes something that's quite distant, a topic that's quite foreign for people with disabilities. And on top of that, as I wrote in my recent article, there are many organizations of people with disabilities have very, very limited and also thin, thin, thinly resourced uh, uh, that's, that they're basically very stretched in their resources. And that's why they need to prioritize broader rights issues that are more pertinent or more immediate for their overall lives of persons with disabilities, such as employment or health or education or other rights. And in contrast, disability-inclusive DRR tends to be something that's more specific, uh, a specific right that's only linked to disaster situation. Now, coming back to your question again, Kenya, with this situation, what do we need to do to ensure better representation of people with disabilities? I think the key is first to sensitize both sectors, the DRR and disability, that DRR must be disability inclusive. And also, we need to sensitize both sectors that, you know, if we don't do this, we, we risk our DRR practices becoming inefficient because it ignores the most at risk population. And the second is establishing platforms of coordination and collaboration between DRR and disability actors at various levels, 
and also ensuring that people with disabilities can meaningfully participate in their art policies and practices. I think building communication between the two sectors is going to be a very important start. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you. Thanks so much for this. So, Husna, I want to come to you and um, ask you about the importance of communication, which is something that we talk about quite often in uh, this podcast over our, our five previous seasons. Um, and so I want to ask you, how do you decide and devise the best communication strategies? And how do you involve people? I mean, we're talking about engagement here. So how do you really engage people and ensure that the communication strategies that you use really work for them and are appropriate for them? I think devising the best communication strategies is a never-ending process. Perhaps we have to ask who gets to decide whether it's best or not, and also best for who. I believe that communication strategy should and will continuously grow along with the process of creating impacts uh, through the projects we are doing with the community. But there are at least three main strategies that we have been using to convey uh, the impacts, achievements, and learnings of our projects in the ASB. Uh, first, we need to be aware of who are the main target audience of our communications. How old are they? What are their genders? Where do they come from? What are the social, cultural, educational, or professional backgrounds that they have? And you know, other kinds of intersecting identities even to know their content preferences as well, because you need to tailor your communication strategy to fit your existing audience or to fit the potential audience you want to reach. Um, second, we determine what are the goals of our communications and what are the messages that we want people to learn from us. We want people to simply be aware of the project activities that we are doing in Indonesia and the Philippines, for example. Or do we want to also facilitate them in increasing their knowledge and engaging with us about some topics that we are trying to champion, such as uh, the inclusive disaster reduction or the inclusive climate change adaptation and so on? Or do we want to comfort them and change their behavior so they would join our causes? Those are the goals that we need to decide and keep in mind when we communicate something through our projects because this is important to help us decide the types of communication methods, the platforms, and also the compatible content, such as the copywriting and the design. And the third, the last one, this is also related to your question about how do we involve people. So um, actually, we've been doing a project in Indonesia called Pioneer. Uh, this project is about the localization of inclusive humanitarian action. So this project works together with partners, including local humanitarian actors and the organizations of persons with disabilities. So the core value of this project is to enable meaningful participation uh, of everyone being involved throughout uh, the project stages. That's it. We try to also collaborate with our partners in conducting communication activities. It's still on the initial stage, but we have been determining the communication goals and strategies together with them, with our partners. So we decided as a team, everyone will be responsible of doing something in the communication activities. And by doing this way, we try to make sure that the communication process will have the appropriate impacts for them 
not only for us as the intermediary organization and neither only for the donors. And this is also what ASB in other offices, such as in Greece and Southeast Europe do. We try to mainstream the participatory method in creating communication materials, such as making a participatory video with the affected community. And we plan to implement the participatory methods in our projects that directly, directly involve the community, such as uh, in the localization project. But yeah, honestly, it is not an easy task to do. We need to make sure that the decision-making process will be as equal as possible and that there will be no patronizing actions or uh, perspectives during the process. We also need to adjust the methods because participating in a collaborative way is definitely more difficult than doing it alone. And actually the Pioneer project uh, at ASB will be a pilot project of implementing more participatory ways of doing communication process. So we'll have to make sure that whenever we decide to create something for the feasibility purposes, as for example, you know, making a learning document, um, this document must be working for the interests of our local partners too. Then we will decide together how would uh, they use the materials to boost their own feasibility and also to decide what can we do to uh, quote unquote uh, recycle the learning document into something that is uh, share worthy. The main point is to try our best to listen to their voices and amplify those voices by using any appropriate means. And Miguel, we'll go to you now. Um, we kind of continue talking about different, I guess, groups of people um, today. And so Jason and I are particularly excited when we saw your paper um, in the special issue, the Emerging Voices special issue, um, because you are engaging with the community of people that we haven't really um, talked about today. And these are uh, grad students and high school students. And, you know, we talked about children and youth on the podcast before, and we had um, a couple of live streams, a special episodes. But in your work, you specifically focusing on the way that grad students work together with high, with high school students or could be working together. And so for you, why is the representation and the voices of young people so critical in disaster practice and research? How did you come to work with um, this community of people? You know, when I was working in Mexico, I realized that you were not very taken into account in the decision-making processes for disaster reduction, even when we have like very cool ideas. Uh, and that's why I started also looking for other spaces and I joined actually the NGO Aware Youth Network. Uh, based on that and all the literature I could read during my doctoral research, I could confirm that youth were not properly represented, even when they are also some of the so-called vulnerable groups. So uh, then it didn't make any sense for me, right? Um, therefore, I believe uh, we could provide these kind of uh, groups, youth, but also other different communities, as Lila, Lily say, for example, disabled disabled people, uh, with different uh, resources and spaces to know and to support the ideas they have in mind. And I think this podcast is a very great example. So I congratulate you for this opportunity. 
uh, well. And I mentioned that because I think we young people have the capacity, but I, I don't want to limit it to young people, but also the different communities. We have the capacity to lead or maybe propose initiatives for being more prepared for disasters and to contribute, contribute for the mitigation of them. So I really believe that uh, uh, we uh, are lack of these opportunities, but we still have to work on providing with these opportunities. Otherwise, we are not going to be able to know uh, what they are thinking. And we are always kind of researching something that probably is our perspective, but not their, their own point of view. So I think it's very important to hear a little bit more about what they are thinking, but also what they want to do for being more prepared in order to face uh, the different hazards which they are exposed, for example. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And I just want to um, close this episode by just highlighting once again that it's been wonderful to hear from all of you today. And Jason and I, uh, I we just enjoyed so much reading your work in the special issue because it's great to see that so many early career researchers are really pushing this um, narrative away from the concepts, you know, in the kind of normative concepts and are really trying to challenge how we understand communities, uh, what it is we need to do in disaster research. And again, you, you've showcased this today uh, in your work. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great uh, hearing from you. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Xenia, Jason, and us, Miguel Trejo Rangel, Susna Wulansori, and Kristen Levy Kusumwardayo on Disasters Discontracted Podcast. <laughs>